calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com contagious. Sheffy. Sheffy Jones awoke to find himself under the living room carpet. He had two infections, one on his left collarbone, one just under his Adam's apple. The skin between them had blackened and sagged, the necrosis spreading toward his face, down his chest, and deeper into his throat. Before he died, Sheffy had just enough time to flip the carpet back and wonder why he hurt so bad. While he'd slept, the apoptosis had weakened his carotid artery, which gave way at that exact moment. Just one tiny hole at first, enough for blood to squirt out into the blackened sludge surrounding it. He was in so much pain, he didn't even notice the difference. The first pinhole became a second, then a third, and then blood pressure against the thin artery wall ripped open a hole the size of a pencil eraser. Blood sprayed all through his throat, a few thin jets pushed out through the black rot, but most of it just shot around inside his body. He gurgled as he breathed it in. Blood filled alveoli and soon reduced the ability of his lungs to draw oxygen. He couldn't scream because his vocal cords had dissolved right before his carotid gave way. He managed to stumble to the front door and open it. Then he fell. He tried to crawl, but it wasn't very effective. Sheffy hadn't been in good shape to start with, and without oxygen, his muscles shut down right quick. He got to his knees, struggled to get one hand out the front door, then fell again. Sheffy Jones stopped moving. He had drowned in his own blood. The apoptosis chain reaction continued. The son of a bitch. The orbital rearranged the probability tables and ran scenario after scenario. The child's mind had produced a clear signal. She might be strong enough to carry out the new strategy's next phase. And if she wasn't strong enough, the other child might be. He wasn't as well-developed as Chelsea, but he was coming along fast. Both of them together would provide all the ground-based brain power the orbital needed to direct the protectors. Unless, of course, the son of a bitch found them as he had found the rest. 
Biofeedback from the new strain showed the orbital that cultivating muscle fibers from each host was too risky. Too much potential of harvesting damaged stem cells. A problem with a simple solution. The children would become the vector. The children had successfully developed modified muscle fibers, fibers that could split on their own, reproduce, introduce those fibers into new hosts, and the infection would spread. That solved one problem, creating protectors. But a second, equally significant problem remained. How to stop the son of a bitch. The orbital hadn't been built for situations like this. The creators hadn't programmed specific instructions on how to handle a host-turned-hunter. Killing him was the obvious strategy, but that hadn't worked yet. Hosts from each of the last three batches had tried and failed. Not only failed, but died in the process, removing their potential hatchlings from the build phase. Son of a bitch was human. He could die, but targeting him was too risky. The simulations rolled on, and one strategy continued to show the highest probability of success. Just keep the son of a bitch away. Could the orbital block just one host from the communication mesh? Yes, decided it could. It would be difficult, taking up much of the orbital's ability to process communication for the rest. The female child host could be modified. She could act as the central communication bridge, freeing up enough of the orbital's processing power to locate and block the son of a bitch. If he couldn't hear... He couldn't find the new gate. Day four. Big Sammy's bar. Margaret hadn't given the computer room chairs a second thought until Perry sat in one. He'd opted to stand at first, but his little grimaces made it obvious his knees were killing him. Margaret pulled the I am your doctor trump card and ordered him to sit. Put an ironing board in front of him with a plate of turkey on top and it would have looked like a grown-up forced to sit in one of the kitty chairs at Thanksgiving. She sat in the chair to Perry's right, due in the chair to his left. Clarence stood behind Margaret, his body radiating tension. Everyone noticed Clarence's vibe, except Clarence himself. Amos, of course, was nowhere to be seen. I really don't like to talk about this, Perry said. Do grabbed Perry's left shoulder and gave it a supportive shake. All the more reason to get this done quick and get it done right. Besides, what else are you going to do with your time? Go lift some weights? Perry nodded. Uh, Push-ups and sit-ups, actually. I think you're studly enough for the moment, Margaret said. We have access to a lot of data about the individual triangle hosts. I'm hoping that adding details of your experience can help us locate the source of the infection. Perry shrugged. I'll do what I can. Margaret tapped at the keyboard, calling up a map in the flat panel monitor in front of him. This is a map of the homes of the seven known triangle hosts from the Ann Arbor area, she said. She moved the mouse and hit a selection on the screen. Seven house icons appeared on the map. Perry saw that two icons, one stacked on the other, sat over his apartment complex between Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti. Those two formed the point of a triangle, with the second point almost in downtown Ann Arbor, and the third point, south of Ann Arbor, in Pittsfield. The other three house icons looked more random. One in Whitaker, about five miles south, and a little east of Perry's apartment complex, then two very close together, in the farmland just south of Ford Lake and Rossonville. What's the pattern? 
Perry asked. There isn't one, Margaret said. These are just the home addresses of the victims. We can also add work or school addresses. She clicked the mouse again, and seven blue dots appeared. We can also add any known locations of the host for the two weeks prior to the day you started itching, but the map gets kind of crazy if we do that. The problem is, we can't find any correlation in these locations. We still have no idea when or where people were infected. We need to use your memory of the days before you started itching and compare that to the information we have. Hopefully, we can make a connection that points us to the time and source of the infection. Perry nodded. Okay, Margaret said. For starters, you and Patricia Dumont both lived in the same apartment complex. Who's Patricia Dumont? Perry asked. Um, I believe you called her Fatty Patty, Margaret said. Perry had fled his own apartment shortly after killing his friend Bill, just before the police arrived. He'd had only moments to hide and nowhere to run. Fatty Patty lived one building over. Her triangles had called to Perry, promising refuge. He turned out to be a less than pleasant guest, even roughed her up a little. He hadn't killed her, she died when her triangles ripped out of her body, but he sure as hell hadn't done anything to help her. Patty's ordeal was a major reason Perry killed every host he found. Dying at his hands, no matter how brutal, was far, far better than death from a hatching. Oh, Perry said quietly. Yeah, her. Okay. So that's two hosts living in the same apartment complex, Margaret said. But only two. If the vector was in the complex or went through the complex, we would assume there would be more hosts. Unless you were banging her, Dew said, which means you could have been infected at the same time. Perry shook his head. I hate to admit it, but I hadn't been late in weeks. I might have seen her around from time to time, but I'm not sure. The apartment complex was pretty big. I can say for certain I never spoke to her, though. She worked in Royal Oak. You worked in Ann Arbor, Margaret said. So you travel in opposite directions for work. Margaret tapped the keyboard, and two of the blue dots started pulsing, one on the location of American Computer Solutions, where Perry had worked as a support rep. We're trying to figure out where you and Patty might have crossed paths, Margaret said. We know roughly where she was in the days before the Monday you started itching because this database has her cell phone records and credit card receipts. Is that legal? Perry asked. Dew laughed. Don't worry about it, kid. I wondered the same thing, Margaret said. But stopping this thing from killing people takes priority, wouldn't you say? The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, Perry said. The Fourth Amendment. You guys ever heard of it? Margaret stared at the big, beat-up man crammed into the tiny chair. He only looked like a dumb jock. Dew was equally speechless. Don't be so shocked, Perry said. I went to college, remember? Well, tell you what, college boy, Dew said. You find the history book that talks about Thomas Jefferson having blue triangles growing on his nutsack, then you can quote the Founding Fathers all you want. Perry leaned back in the chair and sighed. All right, fine, whatever. Let's just get on with it. Margaret continued. Your records aren't as detailed as Patricia's. The only person you seemed to call was Bill. We show you made ATM withdrawals every week in the same amount, 
from a machine near your apartment, but you have almost no credit card purchases. I only use credit cards at the bar, Perry said. When I've had a few, I tip too much on each round. With the credit card, I only tip once, so I don't overspend on my drinks. I use cash for everything else. That's how I stayed on budget. When my weekly cash ran out, I stopped spending. Margaret nodded, feeling a flutter of hope. If Perry had shopped somewhere and come into contact with another Triangle host, Cheng might have missed it simply because Perry used cash. Since we don't know what causes the infection, we don't know the length of the gestation period, Margaret said. Maybe the vector hit you the day before, the week before, or the month before. So let's take it one day at a time. You told us you started itching on a Monday. So try and remember, what did you do that Sunday? Perry touched the stitches on his lip as he thought. Um, me and Bill probably watch football all day. Where? Perry shrugged. Probably just my apartment. Now, we know you were at a bar that night, Dew said. His finger traced a line on his flat panel screen. Here we go. Where is Big Sammy's bar? Westland, Perry said. Just about halfway between Ann Arbor and Detroit. Big screens, lots of hot girls. That Sunday you spent $46 even, Dew said. It's on your credit card history. Perry thought for a second, then nodded. Yeah, sure. I do that with a tip. Put in the right amount of change so it comes out even. Bill and I went to Big Sammy's to watch the Lions play the Colts. The late game. The Lions lost. There's a surprise, Dew said. Come on, Perry said. Cut them some slack. They only lost by two touchdowns that time. Then what happened, Margaret said. Game ended. What did you do? As he thought, Perry moved his finger from his stitched lip to his black eye. I went home. I think I was a little drunk, so I was driving real careful. No, wait. I got hungry, so I stopped at a store to grab some munchies. Where did you stop? Perry shrugged. Man, I can't say. That was like six weeks ago. I was drunk. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Do lean closer to the flat panel. Could it have been a Meyer supermarket in Belleville? Could be, Perry said. That's on the way home. Margaret stood and walked over to stand behind Do. Why, she said. What's significant about that particular store? Do pointed to another line. His fingertip left a little smudge on the screen. Credit card history shows Patricia Dumont bought over a hundred bucks worth of groceries at Meyers in Belleville. Dew said. 10.31 p.m. Margaret sat back down in her chair and started pounding on the keys, excitement bleeding through to her fingertips. That might give us something. Now Dew got up from his chair and stood behind Margaret. So the vector is a supermarket? Margaret shook her head. No, it's probably not the store itself or the food it's sold. Otherwise, 
we'd have certainly traced other hosts back to it. But now, we may have two hosts in the same location at the same time. She typed a few keys, and the icon denoting Perry and Patricia's infection slid west to hover over the Meyer store. The icon's new location instantly created a visual curve, one that started in Whitaker, then moved gradually northeast through the two house icons near Rossenville, then sharper east towards the Meyer and Belleville. Perry had been there around 11.30 p.m. So had Patricia. If the host that lived in Rossenville had been home at that time, which was likely... Clarence, Margaret said. Can this thing call up historical weather patterns? Probably, he said. Let me drive. Margaret stood, and Clarence sat down. Perry leaned over to watch Clarence's hunt and peck typing. You need a hand with that, champ? Clarence kept his eyes on the keyboard in the screen in front of him. I think I can swing it, chief, but thanks for being such a helper. So it's not the supermarket, Dew said. You think maybe something blown through the air, right? Something airborne. Airborne is a term for one host passing the disease to another through sneezes, coughs, or even breath, Margaret said. Look at the range on this curve. We're talking miles here, not feet. The more accurate term is windborne, where wind is the mechanical vector driving the spore. But wouldn't Chang have checked weather patterns? Du asked. Of course, Margaret said. But the wind can change direction from minute to minute. We now potentially have an exact time of infection. Cheng never had that. Perry, what did you do after you got your food? Ate it on the way home, Perry said. Got home, undressed, went right to bed. I had work the next day. The vector must have been on your hands, Margaret said. Or maybe on your clothes, and when you got undressed, you spread it around. You must have touched, uh, some private places. A guy scratching his balls in the privacy of his own home, Dew said. Imagine that. Okay, Clarence said. I have historical weather. What do you want, Margot? Give us wind direction at 10.30 p.m. on that Sunday, she said. Focus in on Belleville if you can. Otto tapped away. Blue arrows appeared, pointing mostly east and a little bit north. A green line of text at the bottom read, 0.5 miles per hour, 260 degrees. That doesn't work, Dew said. The wind direction doesn't line up the Rossenville hosts with the store. Clarence, Margaret said. Show me a time-lapse projection of wind patterns from 10 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. Clarence looked at the keys for a second, but didn't type. Uh, I don't think the computer can do that. Jesus, H., Perry said. Give me that. He grabbed the keyboard and pulled it onto his lap. His big fingers flew across the keys. Data fields popped up on the screen and filled with strings of text faster than Margaret could even read them. You people remind me of the idiots I used to support at my job, Perry said. It's like you guys never read a software manual in your life. This is basic stuff, guys. He hit one last key, and the blue arrows on the screen changed. Instead of a west-to-east orientation, they started pointing north, then curved northeast, and finally wound up pointing due east. Perry clacked a few more keys. The blue arrows vanished, save for one, an arrow that started at the Whitaker House's icon, curved to the right to cross over both the Rossenville icons, then farther to the right to cross over Myers. Holy shit, 
Deuce said. That's it. It's fucking airborne. Windborne, Margaret said. Windborne, right, Deuce said. So what about the other hosts that are outside of this pattern? Could be a number of things, Margaret said. They could have passed through the wind curve at just the right time. Could have been another, well, I don't know, another gust that carried the spores to other areas. This curve doesn't account for everyone, but it accounts for half of them. It's statistically significant, no question. Clarence turned in his chair to face her. But what does this really tell us? I mean, wind can blow all over. Perry spoke before Margaret could. It gives us a projection based on wind speed and the distance between infection points. From there, we can potentially extrapolate a vector path and possibly even arrange for potential release point locations. Combine this data with hosts from the other infection locations. Maybe you can reduce the search area for the release point. What Margaret is saying is that Colonel Ogden was right. It's a satellite. This weather analysis might tell us where to look for it. Margaret smiled and nodded at Perry. He winked at her. College, Dew said. Perry nodded. College. Perry, Margaret said. Can we do that here? Perry shook his head. That takes way more computational power. You have simple wind direction history, sure, but you need to extrapolate that against the distance between infection points, air temperature, humidity, uh, probably a bunch of other shit I don't even know. It's a whole different ballgame from what I just showed you. Let's kick this back to Murray, Clarence said. See if he can put it in front of some of his most brilliant minds the nation has to offer. Fuck yes he can, Dew said. He'll have the National Weather Service and climatologists and God knows what on this faster than you can hum Oh Susanna. Clarence kept staring at Perry. I might have been wrong about the dumb jock stereotype, he said. You're pretty goddamn smart. Perry didn't look away from his monitor. Nah, you were right about the stereotype. It just doesn't apply to football. You have to be smart to be good at football because it's complicated. He turned and smiled at Clarence. The dumb jocks play basketball. Perry turned back to face the monitor. Clarence shook his head, and Margaret just laughed. Chelsea in charge. Chelsea Jewell slowly woke. Her head hurt real bad. She wanted her mommy. No, that wasn't right. She had to watch out for mommy. Mommy might want to hurt her. Chelsea wanted her daddy. Daddy was still okay. And yet that wasn't right either. She didn't want her daddy. She wanted to protect her daddy. She wanted to protect what was inside of Daddy. Are you awake? She looked around the room. Where had that voice come from? She couldn't see anybody. Are you awake? Yeah, Chelsea said. Where are you? I am very far away. Oh, Chelsea said. Then why can I hear you? Because you are special. You are the only one there who can hear me. Mommy and Daddy can't hear you? Not yet. My daddy's sick, Chelsea said. So am I. I feel a little better now, but my head hurts real bad. Now my tongue feels all thick and stuff. Mommy scares me real bad. I think she wants to hurt me. 
You don't need to be afraid of your mommy. Are you sure? Yes. Chelsea felt the fear of her mother vanish, as if a breeze had blown it away. Your daddy is not sick. He is very important. Chelsea saw visions of something triangular, something that resembled one of her yellow wooden blocks, the one that looked like a little pyramid, except in her vision, it was black and moved on strange legs. It was beautiful. It was special. Just like Mommy always called her special. Daddy has pretty dollies inside of him, Chelsea said. Is that why he's important? That's right. Daddy has dollies inside of him. Mommy called Chelsea special, and Mommy had always protected Chelsea. And now Chelsea would protect Daddy. Daddy and the dollies. The closet door opened, spilling light inside. Honey, Mommy said, what the heck are you doing in here? Chelsea blinked as her eyes adjusted to the light. She waited for the fear, but it didn't come. The voice said she didn't need to be afraid, and she wasn't. Sleeping, Chelsea said. But why in the closet? Chelsea shrugged. I don't know. That's what your father said. I found him sleeping behind the couch, of all things. Are you guys playing some joke on me? Chelsea shook her head. Right, Mommy said. You both hide somewhere to sleep, and it's not a joke on me. We'll just see about that. But enough playing around. How are you feeling? Not so good, Chelsea said. Mommy picked Chelsea up and laid her back down in the bed. She put her hand on Chelsea's forehead. Mommy's hand felt cool and nice. You're not as hot as you were, she said. Do you feel worse or better than before? A little better, Chelsea said. Mommy's brow wrinkled up and her eyes narrowed. Honey, open your mouth, she said. Stick out your tongue. Chelsea did. Mommy got that worried look on her face. Honey, you've got blue spots on your tongue. Does your tongue hurt? A little, Chelsea said. Stick it out again. I've never seen that before. I don't like it. I think tomorrow we're all going to the doctor. Chelsea felt a shiver ripple across her skin. The doctor. The doctor that always hurt her with needles and stuff. The voice was wrong. She should be afraid of Mommy. But I don't like the doctor, Chelsea said. And I don't care if you like him or not, young lady. You're going. You and your father both. He's itching like crazy, and he's getting these orange welts on his skin. Daddy has dollies inside of him, Chelsea said. My special friend said so. Oh, you have a special friend now. How nice, honey. What's his name? Chelsea thought for a second, but she didn't know his name. She shrugged. I don't know. Well, you can't have a special friend and not give him a name, Mommy said. She gently pushed Chelsea back down in the bed and started tucking the covers around her. What would you like to call him? How about... Chauncey, Chelsea asked. Mommy smiled. Ah, Chauncey, like Uncle Donald's favorite basketball player. Chelsea nodded. Yeah, and his name sounds like mine. Chelsea and Chauncey. Well, that's a fine name, Mommy said. She stroked Chelsea's hair, and that felt really nice. You get some more sleep, okay? I'm not that tired anymore, Chelsea said. I want to get up. 
Just lie here for a little bit longer, honey. Then you can get up if you want, but stay here and play with your toys, okay? I don't want you running around. I'll check on you later, and we'll see the doctor tomorrow. Mommy leaned down and kissed her forehead, then left the room and shut the door behind her. Chelsea sat in the darkness, wondering if Chauncey would talk to her again. He did. You must not go to the doctor, Chauncey said. You have to stop her. Chelsea whispered so Mommy wouldn't hear her. How can I stop her, Chauncey? Mommy's in charge. I have to do what she says. She's not in charge of you. She's not? No. You're in charge of her. I am? You are. Well, she's still lots bigger than me. What if she makes me go to the doctor's? You can stop her tonight, Chauncey said, after she goes to sleep. A picture flashed in Chelsea's thoughts. Yes, she could do that to Mommy. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.